Chapter 18 Thomas Wingfold, Curate by George MacDonald This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 Joseph Polworth Shall I tell you, the gatekeeper went on, something of my life in return of the confidence you have honoured me with? Nothing could be more to my mind, answered Wingfold, and I trust, he added, it is no unworthy curiosity that makes me anxious to understand how you have come to know so much. Indeed, it is not that I know much, said the little man. On the contrary, I am the most ignorant person of my acquaintance. You would be astonished to discover what I don't know. But the thing is that I know what is worth knowing, yet I get not a crumb more than my daily bread by it, I mean the bread by which the inner man lives. The man who gives himself to making money will seldom fail of becoming a rich man, and it would be hard if a man who gave himself to find wherewithal to still the deepest cravings of his best self should not be able to find that bread of life. I tried to make a little money by bookselling once. I failed, not to pay my debts, but to make the money. I could not go into it heartily, or give it thought enough. So it was all right. I should not succeed. But what I did and do make my object does not disappoint me. My ancestors, as my name indicates, were of and in Cornwall, where they held large property. Forgive the seeming boast, it is but fact, and can reflect little enough on one like me. Scorn and pain mingled with mighty hope is a grand prescription for weaning the heart from the judgments and aspirations of the world. Later ancestors were, not many generations ago, the proprietors of this very property of Osterfield, which the uncle of the present Lord de Bear bought, and to which I, their descendant, am gatekeeper. What with gambling, drinking, and worse, they deserved to lose it. The results of their lawlessness are ours. We are what and where you see us. With the inherited poison, the father gave the antidote. Rachel, my child, am I not right to think when I say that you thank God with me for having thus visited the iniquities of the fathers upon the children? I do, uncle. You know I do, from the bottom of my heart replied Rachel in a low, tender voice. A great solemnity came upon the spirit of Wingfold, and for a moment he felt as if he sat wrapped in a cloud of sacred marvel, beyond and around which lay a gulf of music 
too perfect to touch his sense. But presently Polworth resumed. My father was in appearance a remarkably fine man, tall and stately. Of him I have little to say. If he did not do well, my grandfather must be censured first. He had a sister very like Rachel here, poor Aunt Lottie. She was not so happy as my little one. My brothers were all fine men like himself, yet they all died young except my brother Robert. He too is dead now, thank God, and I trust he is in peace. I had almost begun to fear with himself that he would never die. And yet he was but fifty. He left me my Rachel with her twenty pounds a year. I have thirty of my own, and this cottage we have rent free for attending to the gate. I shall tell you more about my brother some day. There are none of the family left now but myself and Rachel. God in his mercy is about to let it cease. I was sent to one of our smaller public schools, mainly, I, I believe, because I was an eyesore to my handsome father. There I made, I fancy, about as good a beginning as wretched health and the miseries of a sensitive nature, ever conscious of exposure, without mother or home to hide its feebleness and deformity would permit. For then, first, I felt myself an outcast. I was the butt of all the coarser-minded of my schoolfellows, and the kindness of some could but partially make up for it. On the other hand, I had no haunting and irritating sense of wrong, such as I believe not a few of my fellows in deformity feel, no burning indignation or fierce impulse to retaliate on those who injured me or on the society that scorned me. The isolation that belonged to my condition wrought indeed to the intensifying of my individuality, but that again intensified my consciousness of need more than of wrong, until the passion blossomed almost into assurance, and at length I sought even with agony the aid to which my wretchedness seemed to have a right. My longing was mainly for a refuge, for some corner into which I might creep where I should be concealed and so at rest. The sole triumph I coveted over my persecutors was to know that they could not find me, that I had a friend stronger than they. It is no wonder I should not remember 
when I began to pray and hope that God heard me. I used to fancy to myself that I lay in his hand and peeped through his fingers at my foes. That was at night, for my deformity brought me one blessed comfort, that I had no bedfellow. This I felt at first both as a sad deprivation and a painful rejection, but I learned to pray the sooner for the loneliness, and the heartier from the solitude which was as a chamber with a closed door. I hardly know how I lived for the next three or four years. It must have been almost on charity, I think. My father was never at home, and but for the old woman, who had been our only attendant all my life, I think very likely I should have starved. I spent my time mostly in reading, whatever I could lay my hands upon, and that not carelessly, but with such reflection as I was capable of. One thing I may mention as showing how I was still carried in the same direction as before, that without any natural turn for handicraft, I constructed for myself a secret place of carpenter's work in a corner of the garret, small indeed, but big enough for a couch on which I could lie and a table as long as the couch. That was all the furniture. The walls were lined from top to bottom with books, mostly gathered from those lying about the house. Cunningly was the entrance to this nest contrived. I doubt if any one may have found it yet. If some imaginative, dreamy boy has come upon it, what a find it must have been to him! I could envy him the pleasure. There I always went to say my prayers and read my Bible. But sometimes the Arabian Nights or some other book of entrancing human invention would come between and make me neglect both, and then I would feel bad and forsaken, for as yet I knew little of the heart to which I cried for shelter and warmth and defense. Somewhere in this time, at length, I began to feel dissatisfied, even displeased with myself. At first the feeling was vague, altogether undefined, a mere sense that I did not fit into things, that I was not what I ought to be, what was somehow and by the authority required of me. This went on, began to gather roots rather than send them out, grew towards something more definite. I began to be aware that heavy affliction as it was to be made so different from my fellows, my outward deformity was but a picture of my inward condition. There nothing was right. 
many things which in theory I had condemned and in others despised were yet a part of myself, or at best part of evil disease cleaving fast unto me. I found myself envious and revengeful and conceited. I discovered that I looked down on people whom I thought less clever than myself. Once I caught myself scorning a young fellow to whose disadvantage I knew nothing except that God had made him handsome enough for a woman. All at once, one day, with a sickening conviction, it came upon me, with one of those sudden slackenings of the cord of self-consciousness, in which it doubles back, quivering, and seems to break, while the man for an instant beholds his individuality apart from himself, he is generally frightened at it, and always disgusted, a strange and indeed awful experience, which, if it lasted longer than its allotted moment, might well drive a man mad who had no God to whom to offer back his individuality an appeal against his double consciousness. It was in one of these cataleptic fits of the spirit, I say, that I first saw plainly what a contemptible little wretch I was, and writhed in the bright agony of conscious worthlessness. I now concluded that I had been nothing but a Pharisee and a hypocrite, praying with a bad heart, and that God saw me just as detestable as I saw myself, and despised me and was angry with me. I read my Bible more diligently than ever for a time, found in it nothing but denunciation and wrath, and soon dropped it in despair. I had already ceased to pray. One day a little boy mocked me. I flew into a rage, and rendered by passion for the moment fleet and strong, I pursued and caught him. Whatever may be a man's condition of defense against evil, I have learnt that he cannot keep the good out of him. When the boy found himself in my clutches, he turned on me a look of such terror that it disarmed me at once, and, confounded and distressed to see a human being in such abject fear, a state which in my own experience I knew to be horrible, ashamed also that it should be before such a one as myself. I, I would have let him go instantly, but that I could not without first having comforted him. But not a word of mine could get into his ears, and I saw at length he was so prepossessed that every tone of kindness I uttered sounded to him a threat. Nothing would do but let him go. The moment he found himself free, he fled headlong into the pond, 
got out again, ran home, and told with perfect truthfulness, I believe, though absolute inaccuracy, that I threw him in. After this I tried to govern my temper, but found that the more I tried, the more even that I succeeded outwardly, that is, succeeded in suppressing the signs and deeds of wrath, the less could I keep down the wrath in my soul. Then I tried never to think about myself at all, and read and read, not the Bible, more and more, in order to forget myself. But ever through all my reading and thinking, I was aware of the lack of harmony at the heart of me. I was not that which it was well to be. I was not at peace. I lacked. I was distorted. I was sick. Such were my feelings, not my reflections. All that time is as the memory of an unlovely dream, a dream of confusion and pain. One evening, in the twilight, I lay alone in my little den, not thinking, but with mind surrendered and passive to what might come into it. It was very hot, indeed sultry. My little skylight was open, but not a breath of air entered. What proceeded I do not know, but the face of the terrified boy rose before me, or in me, rather, and all at once I found myself eagerly, painfully, at length, almost in an agony, persuading him that I would not hurt him, but meant well and friendly towards him. Again I had just let him go in despair, when the sweetest, gentlest, most refreshing little waft of air came in at the window and just went being, hardly moving, over my forehead. Its greeting was more delicate than even my mother's kiss, and yet it cooled my whole body. Now, whatever or whensoever the link, if any be supposed needful to account for the fact, it kept below in the secret places of the springs, for I saw it not, but the next thought of which I was aware was, what if I misunderstood God the same way the boy had misunderstood me? And the next thing was to take my New Testament from the shelf on which I had laid it aside. Another evening of that same summer I said to myself that I would begin at the beginning and read it through. I had no definite idea in the resolve. It seemed a good thing to do, and I would do it. 
it would serve towards keeping up my connection in a way with things above. I began, but did not that night get through the first chapter of St. Matthew. Consciously I read every word of the genealogy, but when I came to the twenty-third verse and read, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I fell on my knees. No system of theology had come between me and a common-sense reading of the book. I did not for a moment imagine that to be saved from my sins meant to be saved from the punishment of them. That would have been no glad tidings to me. My sinfulness was ever before me, and often my sins, too, and I loved them not, yet could not free myself of them. They were in me, and of me, and how was I to part myself from that which came to me with my consciousness, which asserted itself in me as one with my consciousness? I could not get behind myself so as to reach its root. But here was news of one who came from behind that root itself to deliver me from that in me which made being a bad thing. Ah, Mr. Wingfold, what if after all the discoveries made, and all the theories set up and pulled down amid all the commonplaces men call common sense, notwithstanding all the overpowering and excluding self-assertion of things that are seen, ever crying, here we are, and save us, there is nothing. The unseen is the unreal. What, what if I say, notwithstanding all this, it should yet be that the strongest weapon a man can wield is prayer to the one who made him. What if the man who lifts up his heart to the unknown God even be entering amid the mockery of men who worship what they call natural law and science into the region whence issues every law, and where the very material of science is born. To tell you all that followed, if I could recall and narrate it in order, would take hours. Suffice it that from that moment I was a student, a disciple. Soon to me also came then the two questions. How do I know that there is a God at all? And how am I to know that such a man as Jesus ever lived? I could answer neither. But in the meantime, I was reading the story, was drawn to the man, 
there presented and was trying to understand his being and character and principles of life and action, and to some all in a word. Many months had not passed ere I had forgotten to seek an answer to either question. They were, in fact, questions no longer. I had seen the man, Christ Jesus, and in him had known the Father of him and of me. My dear sir, no conviction can be got, or if it could be got, would be of any sufficing value through that dealer in second-hand goods, the intellect. If by it we could prove there is a God, it would be of small avail indeed. We must see him and know him to know that he was not a demon. But I know no other way of knowing that there is a God but that which reveals what he is. The only idea that could be God shows him in his self-proving existence, and that way is Jesus Christ as he revealed himself on earth and as he is revealed afresh to every heart that seeks to know the truth concerning him. A pause followed, a solemn one, and then again Polworth spoke. Either the whole frame of existence, he said, is a wretched, miserable unfitness, a chaos with dreams of a world, a chaos in which the higher is forever subject to the lower, or it is an embodied idea growing towards perfection in him who is the one perfect creative idea, the father of lights who suffers himself, that he may bring his, his many sons into glory, which is his own glory. End of Chapter 18 Reading by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois